You're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by me and my Rebirth Tour. Most of the shows are sold out, but there are tickets available for Aylesbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skegness, 15th of June, and Bristol on the 20th of June. If you want tickets, go to russellbrand.com. This week, we are with Dr. Brad Evans and Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Remain. Brad Evans is a reader of political violence at the University of Bristol and director of the Histories of Violence Project. He's written, I mean, too many books to list here, but there is uh, Disposable Futures, The Seduction of Violence in, in the Age of Spectacle. Have I said that right, Brad? Yes. And Portraits of Violence. Oh, you're obsessed with violence. An Illustrated History of Radical Thought. Rabbi, writer and broadcaster Jonathan Romain is Minister of Maidenhead Synagogue in Berkshire. He writes for The Times and The Guardian. He's crossing the Great Divide there. And is often heard on the BBC. In 2004, he received an MBE for his pioneering work nationally in helping mixed-faith couples, a theme covered in his book, To Faith Do Us Part. Gentlemen, we're doing this episode of Under the Skin focused uh, on the violent incident uh, in Manchester a couple of days ago, media re- media reaction to it and potential alternative reactions to it. Brad, you're a regular guest on the show, so we'll start with uh, Jonathan. Do I call you Rabbi, Professor, Doctor, Jonathan? Jonathan will do. Just go for Jonathan. I'm like I'm such a uh, bowing and scraping little individual that if someone's got some titular angle for me to grab at. I always look for it. I called Brad Professor for about two months till he mentioned he was a doctor. Baffled by it. Um, Jonathan, you. the reason we invited you to be on the show is because we enjoyed your article in The Guardian. Um, could you outline for us what you, you were uh, suggesting in, in as a response to the Manchester violence? Well, I wasn't giving a political response. It's more about how we feel. And just, uh, you see, what the, what the terrorist was doing, he wasn't just triggering a bomb, he was triggering our emotions. Uh, and he wasn't just aiming at the, uh, the victims in the Manchester arena, but he was aiming at everybody across the world, uh, and certainly in England, uh, by, th- by tricking those emotional responses in us. I mean, obviously horror, uh, you know, what happened and the mayhem and the destruction. Um, fear, that actually, it could have been us. Um, maybe next time it might be. It could be us going around in the, in the body bags and in the ambulances. Anger, how could he do it? How could the authorities let him do it? Now, of course, we know that's an unreasonable response. It wasn't their fault, but we still feel unreasonable things. And perhaps also, most of all, is resentment, because it's, it's not what just happened. It's what it, it affects our attitude to today and tomorrow. And like, oh, should I go down to the shopping centre? Oh, it's a lovely bank holiday weekend. I was going to take the kids to a swimming pool or a fun fair better not you know is it safe to go to the FA Cup at Wembley so it's that doubt that sort of can we carry on life as normal that he's really aimed at to almost destabilise us both as a society and as individuals and so this is the you would argue the function of terrorism is to interrupt our own personal domestic narratives of what our lives are and what it's safe to do that's the point of it to draw attention to what you know that's one of the areas that's still sort of 
kind of confusing even to, even to contemplate, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's audacious, really, in the sense it's not just trying to kill people bad enough in itself. It's trying to actually change society, make people behave differently, not be normal. And it's really an attack on our values about, you know, taking life for granted, going around saying hello, expecting the trains to work safely mm. and, 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 mm. and restaurants to be safe and pop concerts to be fine. It's an assault on consciousness. It's an assault on our assumptions of what society is, of what safety is. Now, all three of us, uh, Brad, you, Jonathan, and me, sort of all wrote blogs or articles uh, in various media, broadly speaking, calling for a, a sort of a compassionate, loving, and understanding response. So, uh, retrospectively, I felt that, you know, I'm not talking about your articles because uh, you, you guys are best to judge that, but like myself, I sort of feel like. Wow, I hope it doesn't sound glib because I know there's a lot of people in this country and a lot of people responding to these events that really do feel frightened and really do feel angry. And when you say something like, oh, we have to have a loving response to this, we can't allow ourselves to be consumed by hatred, we can't allow ourselves to feel, be consumed by a fear, that, I think that in some senses further perpetuates the anger. And I'd like to bring you in here, Brad. What I've noticed a kind of a sort of an attempt to prescribe the response, resp- the, the re- what is an acceptable response to these events and to somehow um, define kind of and marginalise certain types of opinion. What in your... Because violence is obviously an area of your expertise and study. What happens culturally when an event like this occurs? What happens in media? Mm. Well, I think on the one hand, I, I completely agree with jo- Jonathan. You know, one of the actual the functions of terror is to terrify people. And in that sense, even though it appears as a political problem, it's a visceral problem as well. It pushes us in a very particular emotional direction. And in, you know, when we think about terror, then what we can also think about it, it's almost like an ecological assault because terror itself creates a climate of fear. And in you know, and when it kind of operates at the level of the everyday, that climate of fear will actually turn the things that you take for granted into a weapon. That you become deeply suspicious over going on a train, or whether it's going on an aeroplane, or going to a concert, because everyday items can become something that can devastate you, that can harm you, and it creates a suspicion of not what's alien, but what you actually know to be intimate. And I think that in itself, then, when we talk about terror, is it's all about feeling. And and in you know and, and you're absolutely right you know it's it would be too easy sometimes to be a bit too glib and kind of say well okay let's just love the world where the everyday reaction of anybody who was thinking maybe of going to for instance your show the following day would be suddenly along the lines of well you know I've suddenly got a doubt in my head I have these very genuine fears because I don't want to put my safety on the line I don't want to put the safety of my children on the line and the problem is the media can actually kind of play into those fears and actually overemphasize them or manipulate them or actually drive the spectacle of the violence in a particular direction because these types of stories and narratives sell and in a, in a way in which is sometimes unintentional the fear itself can almost take on a life of its own within a cultural system and it becomes almost parasitic and and that of course is part of the you know, the function of what terror also tries to do. It gives itself a life of its own in that regard. I was in the Northwest the day after that show performing, and it was, an, uh, as often these events are, unignorable. And on a practical level, the people had had their bags searched on the way in. So there was a physical, ceremonial, ritual, as well as practical acknowledgement that our, uh, as you say, a sort of sense of safety in public had been newly weaponized and imbued with fear. And again, like, I suppose that question of 
us being able to take our freedom, our peace of mind for granted is that the is I, I suppose the intention, the function. Now, why is it that this is being attacked? What is it that's being undermined? Is that something that you feel? Qualified or keen to talk about? Well, we're, we're, it, it, I mean, if you think about it, there's been a new world since 2001 uh, and 9 11. And, you know, the first time that happened, and this is one, this is just a sequence, I mentioned that because this is a sequence, this is the latest. You know, we had 9 11, we had 7 7, we had Charlie Hebdo, we had Nice, you know, and this is the latest. And they're all following the same pattern. And of course, I think when, when 9 11 first happened, people just didn't believe it. They thought they were watching a disaster movie or a spoof or a spoof news. Mm. But now it's become all too credible and it's become, oh, here we go again. Mm. Um, and uh, I think there's another element. It, 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 I think people resent being forced to witness these things. You know, we saw people falling out of skyscrapers. We saw people lying in the blood. We saw people about to be gunned down in Paris. And we're almost forced to become witnesses to something we don't want to see. Mm. And there we are, you know, and it's like we're in the office or at home watching the TV and we're munching a biscuit while someone's falling from a skyscraper. And we feel bad at having been forced to be a part of their death throes. We feel bad having to be brought in something we don't actually really want to be part of. So it really changes our whole psychological outside. Is that a legitimate narrative evolution, Brad? Uh, that, that, that is this, are we experiencing something that began at 9-11? Is that a genuine uh, political, geopolitical narrative? Oh, there was 9-11, then there's these attacks. Is there, is the, are we witnessing the evolution mm. of a story or are we subsequently piecing this idea together? Mm. If so, where does it intersect mm. with other narratives that are less evident? Well, I think, you know, historically, all forms of political violence demand an audience because... You know, the very idea of political violence or terrorism is to communicate a certain form of message. Now, but you're absolutely right that, you know, something is changing in terms of, first of all, what we are witnessing today, what we might call terrors of the global, right? So there's these forms of violence which instantly connect to the, the global war on terror or they seem to have global significance and global implications for them. And you're absolutely right, Jonathan, you know, that for me, there, there's, there's something about this in terms of not only are we full witness to these violent events but actually doing something about it seems to be beyond our control and that's where the real fears and insecurities lie because if you see a problem and you believe that you can do something about it then you're no longer fearful of it but because you know governments will continuously say to us well another attack attacks inevitable well what does that mean for us, right? You know, yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think in terms of then you talk about you know the, the, the change in nature of the attacks. I think all these forms of Modalities of violence come and go in terms of you know what we might call the symbolic dimension. When you to say violence. modalities, what you mean like we're in public and someone. Yeah, and, and the different types of violence. But I think what is actually shifting from nine eleven to where we are today, as you you know, as Jonathan points out, that nine eleven was a very you know powerful, devastating, symbolic form of violence on arguably the most famous building structure in the world. Since then, the violence of ISIS has actually become much more intimate. And ISIS are very clear about the very types of people who they are sacrificing. It's the homosexual, it's the aid worker, it's the journalist, and now, very tragically, it's children and youths, as in Paris. And this is a different shift in strategy, which is, of course, going to affect everybody. If you start killing children, it's going to outrage and it's meant to outrage and that is the really troubling shift in this shift in violence is there such a thing as a like you know like when things happen like people uh, are killed because someone drives a car up onto the curb you, that for me is like 
I, it's easy for me to understand that in terms of, all oh, right, well, any maniac can drive a car up onto a curb. When there are like explosives involved and a degree of planning, that makes me, I suppose, more fearful that there is a strategic intent, there is intercommunication, there is an actual solid thing. If called. ISIS. Now, when you hear like, you know, it's not that, you know, this isn't a response to foreign policy. This isn't a response to imperialism and colonialism. This is they hate our way of life. Now, what is that argument, Brad? Is that a real thing? Is They hate our way of life. And I suppose also it suggests an agenda and intention. What would be like, all right, let's, you know, what do ISIS want? What would be the, like, okay, here's, the, here's this thing, you can have it. And before Brad answers, let me just say, let's not overplay ISIS, because I think there's a distinction between things that are initiated by ISIS, mm. maybe like what happened in Manchester, and things which are nothing to do with ISIS, mm. central, but where individuals, lunatics around the world, get it in their heads, this is what ISIS would like us to do, and they are lone wolves and they're inspired hate to use that word, uh, but inspired by ISIS, like the guy at Westminster Bridge, um, where, you know, he just did it. Um, now, uh, uh, that uh, doesn't uh, seem like it would require a lot of strategy, a lot of centralised planning, a lot of meetings, right, get in a car, yeah. kill anyone who's on the pavement. Yeah. You know, but like, so, so like, I suppose what I'm querying and what we have been querying since 9-11 is how much, how much is this a centralised system? How much is there an ideology? And what mm-hmm. is it that's being asked of the, the... And, of course, ISIS weren't around at 9-11, mm-hmm. but right. you, you, you take it from there. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, terror is almost like like a black hole phenomenon. It sucks everything into its orbit. And ISIS, as if as an organisation, whatever we want to call them, as a, you know, a loose conglomerate of people which come together, they will make claim to any single form of violence, even though they perpetrate or not. And, and you're absolutely right. We shouldn't overemphasize the problem. Now, back to this question around, you know... Um, these people simply hate us for our ways of life. And, and this is a very familiar government narrative which comes out, which came out after 9-11, which came out after 7-7. And on the one hand, there are very clearly dangerous people in the world. And these dangerous people in the world might become violent for whatever reason they want to attach themselves to. But we cannot simply absolve ourselves from the history of colonialism, the history of our own types of wars and, and adventures. And this is something which Jeremy Corbyn, as I, and I agree with him on this, you know, we have to take seriously the histories of the wars on terror, when we are trying to make sense around why people become radicalised, why people can try to, you know, justify the violence they're doing. But, and I think there's also an important Ooh, I'm going to disagree with that. I find that offensive mm-hmm. because that's almost giving an excuse to people and giving them some kind of political validation. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, what, you know, the guy who murdered Joe Cox, mm-hmm. there was no colonialism, no imperialism, no... Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there are some people who are just bad mm-hmm. or mad and... Oh. Uh, and, and who then use things mm. because, um, you know, they've got a vacuum, they've got a... Uh, in Do their you own think lives. that? That's because you're like a rabbi, so you're kind of like, surely your sort of dominant ideology is a spiritualist and religious one, is it? Like, that's where you're coming from, ultimately. Uh, a religious perspective, yes, but it doesn't, so like, doesn't it, divorce me from reality. Cool. <laughs> like, but, but, but so within that, you're comfortable with notions like good and evil in a sort of an objective yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, there is yeah and we used those words, didn't we, only just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about um, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley and, and, and evil. Um, 
Uh, and they had nothing to do with ISIS or well, political yeah, ideology. And they truth, murdered Jonathan, and they hated I wouldn't even and they use the word because that's what they had inside them. I don't know. Listen, this is, I guess, where you and I diversify because I wouldn't use the word we because I'd say there is no we. What is we? Who's we? Who's mm. they? Those are, those are like, you know, that's the sort of like, the, the way that I'm sort of approaching these questions. Now, like, I would like to say at this point in the podcast that we are able to pontificate because I am not being, I'm not personally affected. I spoke to just Noel Gallagher, just a, a resident, a son of Manchester, mm. and he's you know, confused and mortified and, oh, that was the, the school that the perpetrator went to is opposite my mum's house. That hospital there outside is the hospital where I was born. So I acknowledge that it's very different for people that are personally affected. But like you said at the beginning, it is an attack on anybody that thinks of themselves as being free. But I, I, I would back Brad up in that I have to say that in seeking to understand why these events occur, if part of it, if we refuse to look at any contextualization other than there's this thing called evil that's migrating around doing stuff then I, that that for me is more terrifying jonathan because it makes you think well there it is then there's this thing called evil the manichean idea that there is evil and therefore we're all excuse my language fucked it terrifies me because like you know even though i think there's more to life than rationalism i believe in the potential for mysticism i believe in the potential for the divine and the sublime but uh, we do surely have an obligation to look at the context both through the the the, not that you can never absolve murder you can't absolve it no one's trying to absolve it but in seeking to understand it do does one look at the the social conditions in this country uh, economic inequality the uh, the post-colonial legacy and how these things interact now this sort of you know what wasn't the murderer, he was trained in Libya. Is there a, like, you know, we sell arms to Libya, have historically sold arms to Libya. It's not like, oh, well, we shouldn't have sold arms to Libya. But I mean, in a way, don't sell arms to Libya. That doesn't, of course you can't absolve someone blowing up children. No one's trying to do that. But in prohibiting the potential for conversation, I think we prevent the potential for solution. Oh, yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want to shut you up or Brad, but I'm just saying, look, you know, okay, we're in Libya, we're in Syria, we're in Iran, uh, sorry, Iraq. Um, and, and in, you know, all of those places, but there's only been one or two or maybe uh, 20 idiots or lunatics who've then said that is going to lead to suicide bombing. It's not like there's, we've, we've unleashed a million. And we talk about a generation that's been affected. Actually, it's not. It's, it's, it's a number of people. It's not millions of Syrians and Libyans and, 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 and Iraqis who are doing this. It's, it's people who've maybe got some kind of uh, chemistry in their brain that, 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 that then makes one and one make three and a half. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, I understand those arguments, and I think there's a difference between trying to, as I think Russell says, trying to understand the broader historical context than actually justifying the action. And I think trying to explain and justify, and but I understand that is, you know, it's it's a very sensitive ethical line that you have to kind of draw between. Yeah, when, when you're the six yeah. million Jews uh, and and, mm-hmm. and and the Holocaust, Jews after the Holocaust didn't go around that b- mm-hmm. bombing German embassies. Mm-hmm. We just moved on. We just mm-hmm. said that that you know, there's a you don't have to re mm-hmm. you don't have to react to bad mm-hmm. things yeah, with more. Were- Geopolitical things. consequences to the Holocaust. Yeah, uh, there's still murder and mayhem and devastation of their lives, and yeah, people dis- oh, well, felt people disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean is, you don't have to react in that way. People choose mm-hmm. whatever the geopolitical mm-hmm. situation is, whatever the politics, whatever their family tragedy is. You don't. You, you choose how to react. Well, but I think this is, you know, you're actually pointing to a really important thing here because if you, if you were to approach the human condition from a purely animalistic level, there's always this narrative around human beings are naturally violent. But one of the questions you could kind of say, if you give the, you know, given the history of warfare, given the 
contemporary nature of injustice, one of the questions you could argue from an animalistic level is, well, actually, why are humans not more violent? And your point is absolutely right. I agree with you. There's something about the human condition which actually, on a day-to-day level, would much prefer to live in conditions of peace than engage in violence. And in that sense, this is something that's really worth holding on to, especially in the context of Manchester, because it's all too easy for to see the mobilisations of narratives around division, hatred, you know, let's use this event in order to seal the borders. Whereas if you look at, you know, the, the messages coming out from the people of Manchester, it's all about compassion, community, dignity, the, the, the calls to not engage in further violence. And I think that's some, that reveals something innately good about the human condition. Yeah, I mean, and, you're right. I mean, really, what's just so amazing, and I'm not trying to sprinkle fairy dust here, but what's so amazing is just how ordinary people, A, have reacted well, you know, the taxi drivers who took people home, the people who opened up their houses nearby, all the off-duty medics who, who, who rushed in, and just the, just the sheer human goodness that came up. Plus, of course, the next day, everyone went around their normal business. And they did go to the shops and they did go on the buses and they said we're not going to be scared and life has to go on. And it's astonishing how resilient people are and and how they actually do recognise that however awful it is, and we you know, just ran out of words and vocabulary to say how, say how awful it is, actually life carried on fairly normal and, and, the, and OK for those bereaved families, not. Um, but the rest of the country just went about its business in a normal way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's there's a real important point here because you're right, and you can even and you see talk about this and you know the history of the Holocaust. And I was recently teaching Premo Levi's book again, and often in these conditions, words do fail us, and we cannot. Yeah, will you provide some context for Primo Levi's uh, book, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Primo Levi's book. If this is a man, which is one of the most harrowing, personally tragic books I think ever written on the you know the survival of. Um, of, Auschwitz, of Auschwitz and obviously the tragedy of Levi, he couldn't survive survival. But there's something about that book which shows, even despite the horrors of this condition, something of the human can still win through. But but also, you know, words, when we try to explain these things, often really fail us. But it, it, it but the part of the, what I'm trying to say then in this regard is it's not about simply saying, well, let's do away with the emotion. And let, let's see all emotional responses to this type of violence as dangerous. Sometimes we can't put these things into words, but what we need to do is make sure we harness the correct type of emotions, the correct type of emotional response, without it becoming simply negative or resentful, as you, the terms that you use, because it's only natural that we have an emotional response to this. We are yeah. emotional creatures. Yeah. And, and actually, again, people have re- reacted incredibly calmly. I mean, you know, there could be this sort of um, desire either to lash out uh, and to hurt and sense of vengeance, or just to sort of isolate oneself and sort of raise the drawbridge and sort of say, right, we're just going to stick to our own people, our own kind. But actually, people have really interacted and gone around and, and been tolerant, and, and they haven't needed politicians to say, oh, it's not the fault of the Muslims. They actually know that, and they're actually savvy enough to say, this is an idiot, this is a community, this is a, a terrorist, and th- these are ordinary people who may have different beliefs to us, but are still normal, ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, what's interesting, because you brought in, Russell, um, uh, the religious side, and there's a sort of almost secular religion sort of happens at these occasions. And, and you see, like, these pop-up religious communities almost where people have a vigil and they have songs and they have flowers and gatherings and prayers and, and light candles because people do need to have those rituals and to, and to uh, celebrate or commemorate the moment. The only trouble is, of course, a day later they're gone. 
and, and there's nowhere for people to turn. Whereas you've got your institutions like your churches or synagogues or whatever, and they're there week in, week out. So people who want some comfort or support or the warmth of human kindness can go there the following week or the following month. Yes, it's important, I think, to see where religions are right and necessary in situations such as this. And interesting, too, that there does seem to be a religious impulse in times of tragedy, as you said, congregation, communal singing, uh, tributes, uh, like, yeah, and even sort of like mild forms of the fetish, like, you know, idolatry. That is interesting that that persists and seems to be necessary because what... That how does can the state fulfil that role? What is it like? Otherwise, what do we take? Because really, I suppose what we've been hit by is the the problem and the the, the dread of terror is this: it can happen any time, so it's it's limitless in its potential. So that means the fear in response for it can never be moderated or controlled. Right. As you said, endless fear, endless isolation, endless prejudice and bigotry, all would be justified, all justifiable using that like using that rationale. But I suppose what certain types of ceremony, ritual, and a belief that perhaps there is something other than our material life offers comfort, and as well as comfort in an, ab- comfort in an abstract way, offers a material means for connection. It provides a framework. I think that is very important. And like, I think it's important, particularly at a time like this, when like so many of the words that are used in connection with the, uh, the horror of recent days are connected to religion to mention that there's a, there are a good many things about religion that need to be preserved. Yeah, it's to do with that, the R word, isn't it? So reassurance. We need reassurance. We've been scared. We've been sort of knocked off our assumptions and, and uh, that, you know, what I'm going to do tomorrow is... And then suddenly something dreadful happens and you can't do that tomorrow. And so just by coming together, having been hurt by people, you've got people coming together in these vigils or songs or singing Kumbaya or We Shall Overcome, just sort of gives that sort of reassurance. No, I can actually still talk to people. I can still trust people. People are going to watch my back. Um, and, and, you know, the Queen going here and there and, and going into a hospital, um, you know, gives that reassurance that life will continue, that the state is there, um, that the institutions, which we always complain about, well, actually, they're there to protect us and look after us, um, and that we're not alone, uh, and that we can trust, and we can um, get on the train tomorrow. Evidently, there's a bloody huge problem, though, if stuff like this keeps happening. And, and also, there's sort of like loads of uh, like, uh, opportunism around these times. And the fact is that there we're about to have an election. Now, even me as a person whose tendency would be sort of, if not towards the left, certainly towards compassion, community, togetherness, I sense that this is something that will not benefit a non-militant, non-aggressive response. Brad, what are we likely to see in this being appropriated by media? What have we already seen? Mm. Well, there's, there's no coincidence around, I think, the timing of the event. And it's very similar, actually, to what happened in prior to the French elections. And the one thing that, you know, again, for, for terror, it's, you know, not only is it an emotional thing, it, it, most terrorist attacks you see are very symbolically timed to coincide with a particular memory or a particular occasion. And that timing of the event has, sends another very clear political message. Now, in the context of the British election... On the one hand, you could kind of say, well, you know, who would benefit from this type of an, of an event? Or whose particular narrative would it play into? Well, on the one hand, you could say, well, it could play into those who would see to be the strongest on security. Or those, for instance, who would say, well, actually, you know, would politicise in a certain way and kind of say, well, this is all about migration, even though we know the person actually grew up in Britain. So that's kind of, you know an irrelevant question in that sense. But it would, on the one hand, would play into that narrative around, you know, 
the stronger security, the force of law, the force of militarism. This is what we need because this is the way in which we understand the response. An alternative reading, you could say, and I think it goes back to our previous conversation around, well, how do we meaningfully respond to this in a way which doesn't simply become violence as usual? Or And that requires, I would argue, a much more considered, reflective conversation, whether it's an interfaith conversation or a conversation between people of faith and people like myself who don't have any much faith, despite whatever political differences we might have about you know, the history of the, the conflicts or whatever else. But in order to respond to this, what we need, it certainly seems to be playing in the, certainly the media or certain political actors are playing this in a way in which they are taking the timing of the event in order to stake a very clear political message. And this message is all about more security, more demonisation of the other, more mm. tightening of the borders. Whereas actually you could say... We're at a moment, as we are with all these tragic events, to steer the conversation in a different direction. Right, can I say, when there was violence between British imperialism and Irish republicanism, like, it was sort of clear that it's like, oh, this is to do with British military intervention in Ireland, the historical political intervention, going back centuries, the, you know, sort of a, a colo- misuse of colonial power and abuse of colonial power, right? And you could sort of, you could understand what the intention and objective were. So, of, of, of both sides, you know, of, mm. of, of both sides. So, in this instance, like, is there a... Is there even... Does anybody know? Because I bloody don't. Like, what you could mm. say to... Like, I just go, just give us this and this will stop. Mm. Is it like... Or is it mm. sort of a limitless, amorphous, ideological mm. war? Yeah, and... You know, if you, if you were to come at this politically, whether you look at organisations such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda or all these different organisations, it's such a fragmented collective of deeply violent, almost puritanical people who are driving a very clear political agenda in so much as violence is their reason to be. Now, in that sense, I do agree, again, we mustn't kind of overemphasise this, but I do think your connection to Ireland is deeply significant because if you look in terms of the troubles with the situation in Ireland, that there was another bombing which happened in Manchester, which actually became the catal- a major catalyst for the peace process in Ireland. Mm. And, I, and I think, we, again, we shouldn't overemphasise actually the way in which the British government dealt with the IRA. It was a more conciliatory approach to the Irish people at a grassroots level, which I think was much more effective in bringing about peace. Now... Through all these events that we see with the Muslim world, which I think a lot of it is very much a crass appropriation of somebody committing violence in the name of religion, which has very little resemblance to religion, actually. But what we are faced with is certain opportunities in history through these events to have a much more conciliatory conversation with people who are often demonised as being other. Because what people say is, no, you can't have a conversation with them because they're all mad and evil. But I do remember people saying that about in the situation in Ireland, and that was a, like that, that had to evolve. And like that, you know, and when we keep talking about, it, and it's even hard to remember the names of the organisation because at nine eleven it was Al Qaeda, now it's ISIS. Sometimes it's IS, sometimes it's you know Darshan or whatever that word is. That's you know like but then, but prior to that, the Mujahideen and like so like you know there is as one of the things I think I actually literally got this from Brad's book that there is no such thing as Muslim militancy distinct from Western imperialism. Those two things are so integrated that to distinguish between them. Is if it's not arbitrary, but it's just, it's an unhelpful taxonomy. So, like, when does this? If this problem 
can be traced back to economic imperatives in the Middle East, uh, colonial activity. You know, not suggesting that this is, and this is a sort of a piece of a, a punctuation mark in an ongoing narrative. But I suppose what I'm asking, Brad, is how does this event, how does some kid from Manchester creating havoc and murder and mayhem and terror relate to the Mujahideen and the CIA training and training camps funding? How do... Is there ultimately a connection at the risk of uh, like you know, not seeking to justify anybody's behaviour and seeking to understand it? Because I think probably throughout history, throughout all of the countries of the world, there are young men that are willing to kill and die, mm. you know, like for for causes. There always have been. I, I want to, you know, I want, I want to come in in terms of first of all, you, you're right, you, you know, one of the, you know, this was a very young man. And young men, as we know of this age, are generally angry with the world. But as we've talked about previously, most of them don't go out and commit violence. So how can we understand this? Now, we don't know this, the full story of this person. We don't know what, you know, we, we know there was, there was an, a trip to Libya. And right, we have to be, make sure that we don't go down the line of trying to find some clear line of justification for why this person does, because what their actions are clearly abhorrent and they should be condemned in the clearest terms. What I do think we need to have a conversation around is, you know, it's, we, we hold on to this idea that violence begets violence. This is one of the clearest things you're taught from a very young age, that, you know, if somebody encounters violence, that violence will beget violence. What I'm more concerned with is not about actually apportioning political blame and saying, you know, you've done this historically, so thus you must be somehow responsible, is how do we break the cycle of violence? Ah. And breaking the cycle of violence to me is a much more difficult and fraught and challenging thing, which requires everybody to have a more sober, frank discussion around the history of colonialism, imperialism and so forth, the history of different forms of violence without seeking to apportion necessary responsibility or blame or, you know, and try to say there's some linear connection between therefore we do this, therefore they must do that because history shows that's not the case. But in order to break the cycle of violence, we need to get ourselves into a situation where we approve any slightest trace that somebody who might be completely deranged and off the rail will try to seek any form of justification because of our actions. Yeah, I'm not even sure. See, I'm not sure if I've actually followed, or not sure if I've agreed with you for the last 10 minutes, I'm afraid, um, because I, I don't know if this was a political act. Um, I think yeah, it was an incoherent cry of rage, uh, mm. sort of a, 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 almost a dying shriek. I don't think it necessarily plays into the general election at all, because it could go either way, either supporting the right and more militarism and security, or the left and disengaging from world affairs. So I think it's very hard to see it was a coherent response at all. Um, and I genuinely think it's... It, the, the general election meant it got higher profile, maybe. I don't think it has any political impact either way. And I think in, when it happened um, in Paris and also another European country, it also didn't affect... I think, was it uh, Italy? I can't quite remember. Um, uh, it, it didn't really affect the, uh, the outcome at all. So I, I, I just would prefer to concentrate on the individual, mm-hmm. not on the, yeah. no, on no, the I, political I, yeah, process. I, I absolutely... I don't disagree with you. And I, I think, you know, the, um, one of the ways, actually, one of the dangers we have often with these events is actually to insert them 
within a paradigm of war, rather than actually linking it to question maybe of individual criminal responsibility. And my issue is, you know, we don't know, and perhaps we might never know with these individuals whether they were deeply ideologically, politically committed or not. What I'm more interested in is the way in which certain people will use the event in a deeply political way. So they yeah. will they will appropriate the event and right. say, well, you know, so how does the event function politically? And I think that's what I was trying to yeah, get at. Sure. And this and is where it differs from the IRA, who yeah. did have a clear political mm. strategy. Yeah, right. There's no clear people. political strategy. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Whereas here, yeah. these are mm. very often disjointed mm. pe- people who are not necessarily joined together. Mm. They're not necessarily mm. part of a, a, yeah. um, a, a cohesive mm. political outlook. Yeah, no, and I absolutely agree with you. And, and also, in, in this sense, you know, I think you're also right that one of the, you know, the the beauties of, of democracy or the ideal of democracy, at least, is that the future itself is never foreclosed. So even in the context of the general election, we might think that it could get this event by an action of one individual deeply devastating, destroys the heart of, of a city. He could then, you know, the expectancy and the expectancy if it is this radical Islamic agenda would be precisely to play to the right because these types of groups kind of feed off one another. But actually, history might steer it in a different direction. And I think that would be, you know, that would be the best way to kind of dignify the people of Manchester, right? Is to kind of say, well, actually, how can we steer this event now mm. such that it destroys any sense that it could lead to a further cycle? Because of if we look at, for example, the Daily Mail today, the Friday the 26th and you say like how are what is the political impact now I don't think you know anyone would argue that the Daily Mail doesn't have political intention or a political agenda it's clear that they do it's a sort of a right-wing populist newspaper and then like if you just look at two stories armed police patrol trains for first time that's like and then an image of armed police patrolling train now part of me when like when I'm frightened I want an armed policeman on a train. Good, there's an armed policeman. Few, but there's another aspect of me that thinks, oh, I don't like it when the state starts putting armed police on the streets. And there's another story adjacent. Trump tells NATO get tough on borders. Now, me when I'm frightened, oh, I don't know if I want people that have been in bloody Libyan training camps wandering around near my bloody children. But there's another part of me that thinks, hold on a minute, controlled borders. I've heard this kind of language before. Now, you, like you said, I like that, Brad. What Brad just said is that the future is never foreclosed in a democracy. We're, this is an ongoing conversation, something we're discussing. We, the privileged that are not discussing it through the a veil of tears and bereavement and the heavy weight of loss, those of us that have the luxury of pontificating in a bloody radio studio, can say, like, well, what? where could this go? One can see a version of this where you're saying, like, well, one of the stories I keep seeing again and again is these people were known to police, right? And I can't help but think that the subtext is we should start arresting people before they do stuff. I can't help but thinking that that's kind of in the air. And, like, that, you know, like, oh, we need to crack down on cyber terror. It seems like now, you know, like, these problems may at the time of such an attack seem insignificant compared to the death of a child as a parent. I couldn't agree more. But as we go forward... The idea of increased state powers to uh, to look at people's online information, increased control of borders, increased suspicion of, inverted commas, the other, those that are different. These developing themes 
frighten me. And it's these themes, the reason that it's three men, three white men, in a room that have written articles that say love and compassion in them a lot, is because I feel that that is the side of the argument that will be underrepresented in some forms of press and represented badly in, in other forms of press. And that perhaps we have a little bit of an obligation, the three of us pontificators with our living children to say like that can we have a compassionate response if the history if, if the future isn't foreclosed how do we open one that is potentially benevolent you know like is there a version of this where we say what the fucking hell do you lot want what what's gonna be like a you lot in inverted commas like who is it who are they because it, it sort of fits it still feels more like psychology than politics to me it feels like there's this other nameless amorphous force some shadow self out there that could kill our children that doesn't tell us what it wants yeah, but you're doing exactly, if you don't mind me saying, uh, you're allowing the terrorist to get under your skin um, and you're allowing him it's to name frighten the podcast. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it I, was, I was quoting. Um, bloody good. Uh, yeah, because it, it, it's exactly that confusion of, of what do they want, how do we give, give it, almost blackmail, how do we give in to them, and, and, and assuming there is a them, whereas actually they're not, there's lots of loose individuals. Yes. Uh, and this is the problem. And actually, you know, um, maybe the best response is the Dad's Army one, you know, stay calm, keep calm. I do like the Dad's Army response, and I bloody love Dad's Army, but the sort of the spiritual narcissist in me wants to imagine Imagine that, you know, a, a, a week before, a month before, 10 minutes before, if I met someone that was going to do something like that, that you'd be able to go, what the fucking hell are you thinking? Don't do that. How's that going to help? You're just going to create all this pain, all this misery. You're just going to cause more division, more alienation. And, like, the fact is, as I spoke to someone in Manchester, he goes, but you can't tell... You know what's going on? There are disenfranchised. Like there are people that are from foreign countries. There are people that are born here. There are people. You know that we're putting under the blanket heading of Islamic extremism, where there is a narrative that begins at 9/11 and continues up to Manchester. You know how do we negotiate? What kind of language needs to enter the political sphere? Why is there this degree of disenfranchisement? What would it take for me, white person, now privileged white person, to do that? You know, like I, now are, are we going to just sort of if we settle, Jonathan, on what you touched upon earlier? that there's just bad eggs, bad seeds, bad apples, bad people, then we can't do anything, ever, because there will always be that. But if there is some possibility, whether it's on the level of lone nutters or disenfranchised cell groups out there, you know, that lost and adrift in the world, plotting evilly and strategising... Is there room for negotiation? Is there room for change? Where do we look for it? What kind of conversation are we supposed to bloody have? Because, like, the Dad's Army option, well, yeah, we have got no bloody choice, really. We have just got to just... Well, we do have a choice. We could go over the top and we could do what Turkey does, which is arrest 10,000 people in the judiciary and the military and here and there and the intelligentsia. Or we could go the Trump approach and say, right, we're going to build this, you know, great wall. And actually, we're not. Because, you know, look, I mean, there's plenty of things wrong with British society. But I can tell you now that if I was given the option of living anywhere in the world, Britain would probably be my first choice. Not just because I'm here already, but because I look around, and by and large, it's a democratic society, by and large, with all its faults. By and large, it's a caring society, and we've got an NHS and a welfare society, and we do try and help people who are on gambling or drugs or goodness knows what, and, and we do try and give people a living wage. And, of course, there's lots and lots of holes, but by and large, this is a good society. And, of course, we can. there's nothing claustrophobic about the room for improvement, but by and large, we're heading in the right direction. And that's why... 
why this sort of why should we change everything why, you know, to stop some idiot uh, blowing up a Manchester arena I don't think that's the answer why and, and by the way, we? I wouldn't yeah. also want to use your words of love and compassion because that's a little bit OTT. Um, you know, actually, I'm not going to love my Muslim neighbour. I'm going to respect him and treat him as decent. I'm not going to go over and hug him. Why should I? I didn't do it two days ago, so why should I do it this week? So we don't need to pretend we're all lovey-dovey. We just need to get on. Well, no, we don't mm-hmm. need to pretend anything. We've, we've got to actually be it. Now, like, to, to get practical really well, because the long list of uh, things that you said that were wonderful about Britain, welfare state, NHS, um, minimum wage, they are all contestable policies policies in the forthcoming election, eh? So there's bloody options and indeed room for improvement, as you said, in all of those areas. Now, talking about this sort of like on, on a global level, would it hurt to s- stop selling arms generally around the world, particularly to countries on their own human rights abusers list, and to stop bombing countries around the world? Would these be two policies that perhaps... Well, they may be right in themselves, but they wouldn't stop the odd lunatic. From not the doing odd lunatic. The, so you can argue for those policies in their own justification, mm. but not as a way of changing people. Just like, after all, think about the, who was the biggest uh, sort of um, terrorist in, um, in modern times in, in America. It was Timothy McVeigh. Mm. You know, he was a white American who just had a grudge about something. Nothing to do with uh, uh, Islam, nothing to do with ISIS, but you, you're mm. always going to have someone like that and who blew up people in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we always will. And like, as, as I, I sort of say, the things that the, the non-negotiables we can forget, they're just happening. I mean, you know, people like and spiritual people, as a matter of fact, Jonathan, do contest that if, generally speaking, there was a, an atmosphere of mm, compassion, meditation, reflection and deep communion with a higher sublime force, that that may actually have a practical impact in the same way that when there's acts of violence, it begats more violence. But... You know, like taking non-violence as an ideology, Brad, you know, in relation to this or not, you know, like people have said, oh, this is the wrong time to talk about it. It's disrespectful. But I don't see how it is disrespectful to talk about trying to improve the broad climate of the planet. And Mm -hmm. is it, would it, could it improve the broad climate of the planet? Should we be looking on an international level of not selling arms and Mm -hmm. not bombing other countries? Mm Well, yeah, and I want to link this back to, you know, first of all, the question of how do we respond? And your point, first of all, about, you know, the ramping up of security in this nation in itself, you can say actually doesn't actually make us feel any more secure. And you feel you feel it if you if you go to an airport, for instance, and after a terror event, the more armed military, the more heightened security actually makes you feel more anxious, not less mm. anxious. So, so in that sense, there's something to learn domestically mm. from that. And you talk about the experience that people had going to your show, right? It's almost like you're going through an airport security process and that in itself will instantly make you feel anxious rather than actually just carry on like normal and I think there's something there now in terms of the international and you know again I I, I agree with Jonathan to a point in so much as you can say look you know all forms of violence need to be critiqued on their own terms and and they should all be rightly con- we should condemn violence in all its forms mm. and all forms of violence should be condemned on those terms now, I'm, again, you know, I'm not saying there's any linear connection between one person commits violence, therefore another person will necessarily commit violence, because that's not the way human individuals work, or indeed sometimes nations work. But what I will say is that whenever we are the victim of violence, talking about we as nations, we will always make a linear connection in terms of justifying the violence we do. Do we do that? So look at 9-11 as the obvious example. Look at the wars on terror. The justification that we use for violence always starts that violence should beget a certain conception of justice, which looks like bombing and violence. Now, 
this is clearly patently wrong. But what I so what I'm interested in is not that there is necessarily a direct linear causation, but we will often use that causation ourselves when we are trying to justify our own types of violence. And you know, I, I agree with Jonathan that you know all forms of violence need to be taken on their own terms, and they all should be right, rightly critiqued, especially when we try to use old forms of violence to justify violence in the name of security, peace, freedom, justice, whatever else. Possibly this should have been at the beginning of the podcast. Is it like that? I, I feel in the uh, the weight of a social taboo around even discussing these events. And I feel that that's a sort of a prohibitive force because it's impossible to identify with the suffering and loss of those who are directly affected. And I think all too easy to observe parameters that prevent conversation or contemplation. And I don't know, I hope that it doesn't seem disrespectful to talk about it, to talk about other aspects of this event, to talk about the framing of this event, to talk about the politicisation of this event and the way that it happening is being deployed. Mm -hmm. And uh, what interests me, for, with talking to you both as a, a rabbi and as an academic and Brad, who's like a, an expert in the field of violence, is from, like that is how to mm, polit politicise in a similar way emotions such as love and compassion. Because like behind, whether we're talking about g groups of people or individuals, the raw material, you're, you're right, is rage, anger, hatred, isolation. These are the, the root fuels and causes. And however they're narrativized and subsequently deployed, these surely are the things that, mm. that need to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely right. And, 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 the, and the, the trouble is, it's ne this discussion is never going to end because it's all part of human nature. I remember about uh, when I was about oh, um, 15 or 16, John Lennon issued a call to the world to get rid of arms. And I thought, well, that's good. That's, that's really good, John, except the people will still fight. They'll just use sticks and stones. In other words, it, it's, it's just the, what the weapons are that we use. Um, and it is, unfortunately, this human nature that we have within us. And maybe also a little bit of human vanity, because I suspect that every generation, a bit like ours, thinks it's teetering on the edge of the abyss or some dystopian world and, and, and that things are awful. But every generation has mm. had its awful things. I mean, I just remember, I, I discovered the other day um, that the Pope in, in, what was it, 1314, outlawed or um, um, excommunicated the person who invented the crossbow. Yeah, because he thought right. it was the most vile weapon in the Heresy! world. <laughs> and and you think, oh, hang on, that's a long time ago. The crossbow. What's wrong with you know? If you're going to kill someone, why shouldn't you, shouldn't you kill someone effectively? And he thought that that the crossbow wasn't giving the opponent a chance, whereas a longbow was, was giving the opponent a chance. Well, hang on. Okay, so and and, and you know when when the um, uh, machine guns or the tanks or know, nuclear weapons, every, got bloody every worse, generation though. thinks it's about to be the last generation. I agree with you, and I think that's likely because we are all facing a personal Armageddon we are all facing a personal uh, apocalypse and one could argue does it matter if the whole world perishes in the moment the individual light of your own consciousness is extinguished yes Armageddon is coming yes the apocalypse is, is coming for every single one of us death is coming um, but I suppose uh, yeah and I also looked at something in Lao Tzu where he, where the, where he was talking about like oh this, these advances in technology and he must have been talking about a cart or something it was thousands of years ago so you're right there are recurring perennial narratives uh, in humankind and that's why I think it, in our in our you know, human history. And that's why I think it's interesting to at least to contemplate fundamental shifts such as 
non-violence, like the like Gandhi's commitment to non-violence, and Brad was talking before about sort of uh, I think it Ma- Mexican insurgents, weren't you saying, Brad? They were mm-hmm. like, right, we're going to go the non-violent route. Uh, it's something that I'm interested in exploring when it comes to. If you want genuine real change, then of course you have to do something that's really different. Different types of violence, various kinds of violence, state-sanctioned violence, maniac individual, outlaw, rebel, sect violence, all violence, all death, all in the boneyard. Until we start saying, right, okay, the response is good. We talked about, Brad was on the show uh, like earlier on, and there hadn't just been a, a terrible attack of terrorism of sort of you know English-speaking white people. Probably people in Pakistan have been blown up by the bustle in a couple of weeks about wouldn't have penetrated the sphere of my awareness but like we were saying brad was saying like that imagine if the response to 9-11 had been no more no more we're not going to be bombing anywhere we're not going to there's going to be no violence as a response to this so it made me feel a kind of relief a kind a relief in fact that's difficult to imagine this week it's difficult to even contemplate that while there are so many people grieving when you see footage of people uh, congregated in manchester town center uneasily singing together it's a sad sad difficult time but i mean the point of this podcast is to try and talk about things that are difficult well it's to good to keep about. those ideals in mind i mean that's a lovely idea you know the response to violence is saying right that's it we're never going to do it again uh, and you know if you're if you're sexually you call that utopia if you're religious you call that messianic age um, the, the trouble is, it takes two to make peace. Um, and um, we may have given up the bombers, but would, um, would the uh, Al-Qaeda or, or would Putin? I mean, I, I don't know, for me, this is one of the most depressing things. I thought we'd seen the end of the Cold War and now it's come back. So it's again, can you, you've got to have these ideals, but how do you get everybody else to sign up to them? Mm. Well, you know, I think you're right. War has this remarkable c- capacity to reinvent itself. Um, and reinvent itself in ways which are aligned with technological change, aligned with, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that humans are naturally violent. I think, you know, um, people can justify violence for political reasons, religious reasons, philosophical reasons. But, you know, I think if there was an innate naturalness to human violence, I think we'd been extinct long ago. But what we do about it, I well, think... half of the world has been extinct yeah. long ago. I mean, I sometimes feel violent. Don't you feel violent? I yeah, I feel... I don't want to kill people. Yeah, I mean, well. I don't, and that's called <laughs> civilization. Because I'm coming to your most... synagogue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not saying it's not an innate propensity, but I don't think it's a default setting, which is often actually so. That, you know, we've emerged from this state of violence to civility, because I don't... I think if you look back historically that, you know... People that we've been remarkably civilized and also remarkably violent, and actually we're arguably you know more capable of engaging in forms of violence today in the name of civilization. So I think that in its there's no mm-hmm. linearity of evolution towards more civilization. But in terms of what we do about it, you know, and, and I, I get I, I want to bring this back to you know the deep tragedy about this attack is is the attack on children and the attack on youths, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. What do we do about it? Well, the response has to be education, and there is this wonderful quote. By by Gandhi, and he says that, you know, if we are to teach real peace in this world, and if we are to carry on a real war against war, we have to begin with the children. And taking seriously educational values around the benefits of non-violence, not seeing non-violence as something which is doing nothing, or non-violence as simply a retreat back because the world might be dangerous. But non-violence as a conscious, strategic decision where it's not about basically the ends justify the means. The the means are the ends, where we say, well, actually, no, we are going to give non-violence a go, and we are going to show a commitment to this because we've tried for with violence for too long. And I think that, you know, 
we are we have all these moments in history, and I think you're right that you know every age believes that it's you know it's at, on the precipice of its own downfall. Although even though today you walk around the city centre day, and if you, if you see somebody with you know the end of the world is nigh sign, you kind of go, yeah, I think you're right, mate. Ten years ago you'd have kind of laughed at them, but there's something about this you know this shift in our imaginary, which the media feeds into. It's almost like the catastrophic imaginary we now live in. But I do think actually that you know there is always the opportunity to steer history in, in another direction, and non-violence to me is not simply inaction or it's not something which is you know even pacifism as a almost like a doing nothingness non-violence is an active decision and it actually is an active decision which can steer history in an entirely different direction and that has to begin by the way we educate our children and speak to them all perhaps openly about the catastrophes which they also see on a tv screen i've got an eight-year-old daughter who came on and started talking about this event so how do you educate your children about this how do you speak to them about it well you teach them that actually the world is not so catastrophically fated Oh, thank God, Brad, that we've said something uh, positive and upbeat. There's no way of coming to uh, trite, tight, compact solutions to such a nuanced and complex problem. All we can do is continue the conversation and continue the education. Thank you, Rabbi, for contributing to my uh, education today. I've really enjoyed it, actually. It's very good to hear you. It's a very good perspective. I hope that we'll have you back on the show. We'll be pleased to. And and the message is, that's right, we've got to keep on working hard. Work hard, love hard. I'm coming to that synagogue, the Work Hard, Love Hard Synagogue. That's a place where I can hang out on a Saturday. It's Saturday, right? Yes, that's right. I'm going to check it out. See you tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And Brad, thank you very much. Thanks, as always, uh, uh, Dr. Brad. Thanks, all of you, and uh, thanks very much for listening to the show. That episode of Under the Skin was sponsored by the Russell Brand Rebirth Tour. The next few shows are sold out. There's some tickets available, though, for Aylesbury on the 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skegness, 15th of June, and Bristol on the 20th of June. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. If this show was useful to you or helpful in any way, please review it on wherever you got it and give it five stars because it helps the algorithm and we all work for the algorithm now under the skin.